Hello and welcome to the next edition of our podcast series entitled Contrast in Humanity. Uh, today we will be looking at the subject of the Romans, the next civilization on the docket for us uh, within this humanities class. Um, in this episode, we're going to be looking at a few large eras within uh, ancient Roman civilization. Ancient Roman civilization, of course, lasted throughout many, many centuries. Uh, so therefore, the contents of this podcast will not be quite as concise as the previous Greek unit. Um, so therefore, we're really going to be skimming over the top of these large eras. Uh, but we do want to make sure that we are discussing uh, some of the turning points within ancient Roman civilization. So therefore, I uh, hope you enjoy this, and this is the Romans. So when we last left off, we were discussing the Hellenistic period that occurred after the conquest of Alexander the Great. Alexander's conquest began in the Greek main, mainland, um, also in Macedonia, which is where Alexander was from. He was the, um, the successor to Philip II. Um, within this Macedonian province. He was the king of Macedonia. And his conquest uh, took his Macedonians and allied Greeks all the way into modern-day Turkey, uh, followed by into um, the modern-day Middle East, all the way down into Egypt, and then all the way across the Middle East, uh, so far east to where they actually reached the Indus River which took them all the way into India. And so on this conquest, uh, the main objective was achieved, which was bringing down the ancient Persian Empire, the Achaemenid Persian Empire, uh, which at the time was led by King Darius III or Darius III. Following this conquest, uh, Alexander and his generals and his army and his counselors, they go back to Babylon, which was right in the center of uh, ancient Mesopotamia, which would be modern-day Middle East, um, and Alexander died. Uh, there's a lot of mystery, once again, just like we talked about before, that surrounds Alexander's death. But um, what we can definitely talk about is what happened generally after Alexander died. Alexander at this time did not have a clear uh, predecessor, or uh, sorry, successor, uh, meaning he did not have a son that he could pass the kingdom over to. He did have 
um, a small child at this time. He did have a young son, uh, but a son that was not prepared to uh, lead this very vast kingdom. He was still uh, just a little boy. And he did not specifically name an heir before he died. And so therefore, after Alexander died, his generals, um, his Macedonian generals, ended up dividing up this very vast kingdom, which includes the Greek mainland, modern-day Turkey, the modern-day Middle East, modern-day Egypt, and uh, Central Asia all the way up to uh, modern-day India. This is a very vast empire, which did not stay a unified empire following Alexander's death. Uh, these generals broke up this empire into uh, smaller regions, which, uh, you know, if viewed prior to Alexander's conquest, these would be some of the largest territories um, ever to be consolidated, with the one exception of the Persian Empire. Um, a few of these different territories, uh, one was controlled by Ptolemy. Uh, Ptolemy's family, his dynasty, ended up controlling Egypt, so therefore this would be the beginning of the Ptolemaic dynasty. Um, this was, you know, this was an Egyptian civilization once again, however, it is headed up by Greeks. Uh, the, the Greeks are the ones in administrative power. Um, another one of these territories would be the Seleucid Empire, or the Seleucid Kingdom, which we would find now in the modern-day Middle East uh, during this era. And then also there would be the Antigonid Empire, or Kingdom, which would be in modern-day Macedonia, uh, modern-day Greece. Uh, and I shouldn't say modern-day Macedonia. Technically, that is not um, an actual nation now. Uh, that would be northern Macedonia. But Macedonia at this time uh, would be led by Antigonus' um, uh, family, his dynasty. And so, therefore, all of these guys, once again, the, the generals in which these territories and kingdoms were named after were Alexander's top generals, these were, would also be made up of the people that Alexander grew up with. And so this is, I just find it very interesting that just because they were associated with Alexander, because they were his top generals, now they have a chunk of, a large chunk of the modern world or the modern world at that time under their control. And so once again, this would be known as the early Hellenistic period. A Hellenistic meaning Greek. Um, and this would, if we're talking timeline now, this would be the late 300s and early 200s. Most of the known world at this time, which is surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, is controlled in this way. And so therefore, most of uh, the known Western world at this time around this Mediterranean area would be considered Hellenized which that means that it is heavily influenced by classical Greek culture. So we had talked about, you know, Athens being a center of intellectual thought and philosophy. Uh, those types of uh, professions and those types of concentrations were incentivized during that time. And so therefore, that's, you know, just to reiterate things that we had already talked about in the Greek unit, these were... Um, 
these were great advancements in culture during this time, specifically in Western culture during this time. And so therefore, we see these types of incentivized thoughts spread throughout this Mediterranean world. So therefore, in all these different regions like the Middle East and Egypt and you know Macedonia and even Central Asia, like these cultures were still intact. Um, the existing religions were still intact in these areas. The languages were still intact. Um, you know, uh, uh, clothing was still similar to what it was during um, the Achaemenid Persian Empire. However, there was just more of a Greek influence throughout this part of the world now. And so in some ways, um, you, could, you could view this as being you know, a little bit more advanced, a little bit more cultured, but that opinion right there would depend on which culture you were more associated with. And so once again, we find ourselves in the early 200s, and we begin to see a rise in two other city-states, which have existed for a while at this point, but two other city-states that uh, will become very dominant forces in this Mediterranean world. And they are farther west than Greece, than the Middle East, and than Egypt. Uh, one of these city-states, which is the subject of our unit right now, would be Rome. Rome in the early 200s was just a city-state, a small regional power, which controlled obviously the city of Rome but then the surrounding area, most of the Italian peninsula, but not all of the Italian peninsula. And also notable about Rome during this time, it was a republic. Um, a republic meaning it was a democracy. Um, as, as we had discussed in class, uh, Rome became a democracy almost around the same time that Athens adopted a democratic government as well. Athens, though, credited for the first democracy. But once again, Rome, a republic since the late 500s BCE. The other city-state, uh, which was growing in power as well, was right across the Mediterranean Sea, um, on the south end of the Mediterranean Sea in North Africa, we would find Carthage. Um, Carthage was originally a Phoenician colony but now its own independent empire, its own independent city-state, which was one of the richest city-states during this time. Both of these city-states uh, began to seek uh, more regional expansion during the early 200s. Uh, so when I, when I reference early 200s BCE, uh, that would not be like 200 to 250 BC, it would actually be the opposite because it's a it's a descending timeline. Uh, we would be talking more like 299 to, to 250. That's more of the timeline that we're talking about here. Both sought to have more regional expansion. And uh, here we go. We're talking about the ancient world right now. If we're wanting to claim more territory, what is that probably going to lead to? You guessed it, war. These two city-states, which were right across the Mediterranean from each other, were involved in a set of three wars, which we now call the Punic Wars. This is Rome versus Carthage. 
The first of these Punic Wars occurred in 264 BCE, so still once again around that same point in the timeline here. These two city-states found themselves in a conflict over one island that was actually in between the two in the Mediterranean. Uh, this is the, the island that is right off of the tip of the boot of the geographical shape of Italy, and this would be Sicily. Um, Rome ended up um, achieving victory in this First Punic War, uh, but a lot of unsettled and unresolved feelings after leaving this war between Rome and Carthage. A lot of this uh, conflict was fought uh, through ships, you know, through naval warfare. But when we look forward to this second conflict, all of this, for the most part, uh, was an infantry war. Once again, the first Punic War, 264 BCE. However, uh, a few generations later, in 218 BCE, we see this second conflict. Um, and this, uh, this is the one that is most significant. This is the more famous of the Punic Wars. This would be the Second Punic War. And this is the war that is fought mainly on the Italian peninsula. Okay, so we got this guy leading Carthaginian forces. Um, he rounds, which Carthage owned uh, a lot of Spain during this time. Uh, that, that would be like a, a large colony, a large Carthaginian colony. Uh, but this guy that was rounding up these Carthaginian forces, one of the most famous generals of all time, was Hannibal. Um, and there's there's a lot of reasons why he does what he does here. Uh, a lot of this was um, a lot of the animosity coming out of the first Punic War. A lot of the provisions uh, that were established by the Roman Romans on top of the Carthaginians, um, much like we view the um, Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War One as sparking the German conflict in World War Two, as sort of the same type of thing. But Hannibal takes his forces from Spain, crosses Central Europe along the Mediterranean coast, even crosses the Swiss Alps and enters into the Italian mainland and actually brought the fighting to Rome itself. Um, th this is actually pretty interesting, I believe, here. Uh, he crosses the Swiss Alps um, and took such a big risk that he lost about half of his army, half of his military, uh, crossing this mountain range. Um, and uh, notably, he had war elephants in this army uh, that he was taking across the Swiss Alps. Um, so in my mind, that is one of the craziest visual images um, that, um, I, I mean, that's actually beyond my imagination what that would look like. Uh, but yes, he's taking war elephants across the Swiss Alps going into Italy um, to, to take it to these Romans. And so therefore, reaching Italy, lose, lost about half of his army uh, through, this, um, through this big risk. Uh, but Hannibal's idea was that he was going to gather Italian allies, um, people that were the, these, these city-states within the Italian peninsula that, um, 
that are not part of the Roman society, uh, people that have been fighting the Romans for so long, uh, some of their arch nemesis. He was going to try to get them on his side, join his army, and therefore expand his army once he got into Italy, and he was actually able to do this. Um, and so therefore, with the expansion of this Carthaginian military, um, we see two early victories um, uh, at the Battle of Tre Trebia and also Lake Trezamine. Uh, these were overwhelming Carthaginian victories, which is pretty surprising because in both of these battles, the Carthaginians, they're outnumbered. I would like to mention that they had an infantry, they had a cavalry, but then once again, they had these war elephants, that makes, uh, which makes this army very unique. Um, but outnumbered, going up against this um, superb Roman military, which is most likely the strongest military of the time, um, and comes out with two victories. And then leads to this large battle, that, which is one of the largest, or one of the most famous battles of all time. It is called the Battle of Cannae. Um, this battle is very significant because of the type of strategy that Hannibal used within this battle. Um, it was, and I won't get too specific here, but it was a, a flanking maneuver in which Hannibal put his strongest forces on the outside wings of his infantry front, his cavalry front. Um, and when the Romans attacked the center of, the, of these Carthaginian forces, he was able to wrap his flanks around the Roman army and therefore actually surround the army and led to an overwhelming victory. And when I say an overwhelming victory, um, the Carthaginians were able to actually kill off about 90% of Roman forces in this battle, which is sort of unheard of. That's what kind of makes this battle such a really big deal. Once those Carthaginians surrounded these Romans, um, I mean, not to get too graphic here, but it was, you know, hacking all the way to the middle. And um, the Romans, this is the, the worst Roman defeat of all time, lost up to about 70,000 70, Romans in this battle. It's considered one of the bloodiest battles in the ancient world. And so following this super large battle, which was once again the Battle of Cannae, um, Rome is facing you know, a large disaster here, Hannibal with this large Carthaginian army in the Italian mainland, sights on Rome. Um, Rome just lost its largest force, e even lost some consuls in this big battle, which there were two consuls at the time. These would basically be like presidents. Uh, they lose these people in this big battle. Um, and Rome actually takes a little turn here in this Second Punic War. Uh, it actually led to a Roman victory, as crazy as this sounds, because the Romans adopted a strategy where they actually began attacking other Italian city-states before Hannibal could get to Rome. And the reason that they did that, uh, those city-states were looking to Hannibal to defend them uh, so that they could join his side, which once again, that was his strategy. And... Um, this caused Hannibal to have to spread his forces to too many different places and therefore ended up dissolving his military over time 
and therefore leading to him having to flee Italy. And therefore, once again, the Second Punic War led to uh, an overwhelming Roman war victory, which then kind of set the tone with how this entire conflict between the Carthaginians and Romans was going to end up. And actually, many, many generations later, many years later, once again, I told you all I'm really uh, jumping across a lot of time here, in 149 BCE, we see the beginning of the Third Punic War, which is the Romans taking it to the Carthaginians on their home turf. And so in this war, we see the Romans um, actually laying siege to the city of Carthage, which is in modern-day uh, Tunisia, actually the modern-day capital of Tunis. Um, they crossed the Mediterranean Sea, laid siege to Carthage, and eventually, you know, over a long time, in 146 BCE, the Romans were able to break through the walls of Carthage, uh, were able to uh, utterly destroy this city. Uh, they killed and enslaved most of the people that were in Carthage, um, and they decimated the city to such an extent that they even sowed salt into the earth to prevent any hopes of Carthage rehabilitating into a city-state power again. And therefore, this very decisive conflict that happens between 149 and 146 BCE led Rome uh, to conquer Carthage and therefore all of the North Africa and Spanish territories that the Carthaginians controlled, therefore making Rome a large and dominant force within the Mediterranean world. This was only made possible through the Punic Wars. And so therefore, Rome has territory all around the Mediterranean, not completely, but all around the Mediterranean. And then in addition to this, even between the Second and Third Punic Wars, the Romans were actually able to have victories over the Macedonians. Which remember, the Macedonians were the ones that were controlling a lot of the areas in the east, you know, the Middle East and Egypt. Um, they were able to um, beat the Macedonians in the Macedonian Wars, not claiming all of uh, the different empires, such as the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid, but taking over Greece itself. So to sum all of this little era up here, by 146 BCE, Rome controls Spain, uh, which Spain is not a country at this point, just making sure this is clear. We're talking about um, the area which is modern-day Spain. Rome controls this area. Rome controls parts of North Africa, not Egypt yet, but parts of North Africa, the Italian peninsula, obviously, and then now also Greece. And so therefore, once again, in 146 BCE, Rome becomes the most dominant force in the known world, and they can pay credit to their military. And so following this, um, Rome uh, doesn't really 
not really facing the overwhelming military odds that it was facing during the Macedonian and the Punic Wars. But Rome is now facing challenges within itself. Rome is expanding significantly around the Mediterranean world and is starting to be starting to face some growing pains. And so this gets a little bit tricky as we talk about this. But basically, the big problem is the government structure that they have, the administrative structure that the Romans have during this time was really designed to support a city-state, which is not a very big area. However, now they are controlling the largest part of the Mediterranean world during this time. And with conflict still ensuing in the east and also in the north. And so therefore, this leads to a large issue. And this large issue eventually leads to the demise of the democracy that we find in Rome during this time, which would be called the Roman Republic. The big issue is that the Roman military needed to expand because they're facing now conflicts with uh, Gallic tribes in the north, which would be in modern-day France, and then also uh, conflicts with these Hellenistic kingdoms in the east, like the Seleucids and the Ptolemaic kingdoms. However, this was the drawback. Soldiers must be Roman citizens, and then citizens must be landholders. And so the problem is that the Senate, the Roman Senate, did not want to expand government power to its allies and its new territories. So what this means is they couldn't really expand their military because all these lands that they're taking over, they don't want to make all these people Roman citizens because they don't want to actually make them landholders. And so therefore, they couldn't recruit into their military. Until... A new guy comes into the picture here, a guy named Gaius Marius. And he did one super famous thing. Now, this is one of the most notable historic things that were established during the ancient Roman times. He enacted what he titled as the Marian Reforms. And he did this in 107 BCE. And this eliminated the need for soldiers to be land-holding citizens. And so at this point, uh, since soldiers did not have to own land, and they did not technically have to be citizens to fight in Roman armies, the soldiers now did not owe allegiance to Rome. They only owed allegiance to the general that was in front of them because this is the person that was paying them for their service. So therefore, this started to lead, and this is kind of how this goes in this fall of the Roman Republic here. Um, this ended up leading to another element of this demise, this chain of events. Now that the armies are totally devoted to the generals that are in front of them, not necessarily to the state itself. Uh, there were a couple generals that took things a little bit too far, obviously. So in order for these two generals to subdue some instances of civil unrest 
which happens in a democracy, they actually occupied the city of Rome with their military, which once again was devoted to them, not to the city of Rome itself, not to the state of Rome itself. So therefore, obviously, this was unconstitutional. Now, I will say this, these two generals did not do this at the same time. These were separated by generations here. The first one to ever do this was a guy named Cornelius Sola. The second one to do this, this was the more famous time that this happened. This occurred and was performed by somebody that you know, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was one of these two generals that actually brought his military into Rome to subdue these instances of civil unrest, which, um, no matter what the good thoughts were here, was unconstitutional. Also noted here, um, Julius Caesar was already a really big deal at this time because he had recently just conquered most of the Gallic tribes that were found in France. Therefore, he had expanded the Roman Empire even more during this time, which this is within the first century BCE. He was able to expand the Roman um, civilization, the Roman Republic, even into modern-day France now. And so to kind of continue with his story, after he occupies the city of Rome with his military, with his army, Caesar proclaimed himself as dictator. And this happened in 44 BCE. And this was the most significant thing that Caesar did. The reason that he did this was because he viewed this as the only way to... Um, subdue all of the civil unrest and actually end a lot of the civil wars that were happening in Rome during this time by consolidating power into himself. And so therefore this paved the transition from the Republic of Rome to turn into what we now know as the Roman Empire because once again the consolidation of power proved to be the best method to maintain consistency and peace within this vast Roman territory. However, a lot of people didn't like this, and, you know, crazy stuff happens in the ancient world. Caesar goes to meet with the Senate one day, and he is actually assassinated by members of the Senate which once again happened in the same year, 44 BCE. And this happened on March the 15th, which is uh, very famously known now as the Ides of March. And after Caesar was assassinated, we have more civil wars occurring after his death, but eventually Rome was taken over by a guy named Octavian, was actually one of Caesar's younger relatives, um, thought to actually be his adopted son. He actually took over Rome, becoming the actual first Roman emperor. When he became emperor, he was then known as Caesar Augustus. So to close this thing out here, 
after we um, after we see the transition of Rome turning from a republic into an empire, we see some years of expansion once again. Uh, at this point, when it becomes an empire, Rome had not actually, ex ancient Rome had not expanded to its full extent geographically. We see years of expansion into the Middle East, um, which would also include. Um, you know, modern-day Israel, you know, modern-day Jordan, um, all, all of that area uh, directly to the east of the Mediterranean, which would also be during the time of the death and crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth under the direction of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. But we also see Roman expansion into Northern Europe, which would be primarily focused against Germanic tribes. And to look farther into this, we see one large and lastly uh, significant thing to happen to this Roman civilization in 285 CE. So at this point, we have arrived into the Common Era. Emperor Diocletian divided the Roman Empire into two halves. Once again, it is at this point where Rome was at its largest expansion, which completely encircled the Mediterranean Sea. At this time, the Roman Empire was then the largest empire to had ever existed, larger than the Persian Empire, larger than the Hellenistic Empire. It completely encircled the Mediterranean Sea, and this emperor during this time thought that the only way that it could be successfully managed, this vast empire, would be for it to be divided into two halves. One half would be the Western Roman Empire, which traditionally would still include Spain, still include modern-day France, still including the Italian Peninsula along with the capital city of Rome itself, and then also across the sea, um, you know, also including uh, the Northern Africa, area which you know we're, we're still talking about modern day Tunisia we're talking about Morocco we're talking about Libya all of those modern day nations would still be part of the Western Roman Empire yet in the East we find the Eastern Roman Empire which was actually called the Byzantine Empire and its capital was located and established along the Dardanelles, which is that narrow strip of water that uh, we find between uh, the modern-day Greek peninsula along with um, the little stretch of land that's just north of the Aegean Sea, that little strip of water between that and modern-day Turkey. Call that the Dardanelles because it leads from the Aegean Sea into the Black Sea which was a major, major, major trading hub and uh, commerce source during this time. And that capital, which was placed on the Dardanelles, was known as Constantinople. 
This would be the modern day city of Istanbul, Turkey. And to briefly give just a little look forward here um, as we conclude and wrap things up regarding our ancient Roman civilization. The Western Roman Empire eventually fell in 410 CE. A chain of events occurred during this time, the late 300s and early 400s, where we actually see an invasion from a horde of steppe warriors, uh, some Asian steppe warriors that invaded uh, Europe during this time, known as the Huns, led by Antilla the Hun. And as a result of this invasion into Europe, the peoples known as the Visigoths, which are like the prototype Europeans during this time, they had to invade Italy, the Italian peninsula, in order to seek refuge from these Hun forces. And therefore, as a result, it was the Visigoths who actually invaded Rome, sacked the city of Rome, and took over this area. And once again, it's at, it's at that point where we see the demise of the traditional Western Roman Empire. Yet, the Eastern Byzantine Empire survived all the way up until 1453 CE. We will be talking about um, some relations that the Byzantine Empire had primarily with the Far East um, when we get into our next installment. So thank you for joining me today. Um, and that would be the conclusion of Romans.